Yes, he'll drop an ox with just one mighty blow. John Henry was a weakling next to Captain Buffalo. Hello from Hollywood and welcome to the Greatest Show on Grass podcast. I'm your host and ringmaster, Joshua Newman, and I'm joined by Tanisha Singleton. The Greatest Show on Grass explores the past, present, and future of the recently reconstituted Los Angeles Rams. That was Captain Buffalo from the 1960 John Ford film, Sergeant Rutledge, which we'll be discussing later. The first thing we do on each episode is talk about something the internet is buzzing about and why it matters for Rams fans. Welcome to our first segment, Ramdom. On March 4th, the Rams made their first post-January 12th team appearance at the Marriott in Manhattan Beach. According to head coach Jeff Fisher, they were there to discuss off-season logistics, including where they would live. Um, the regular season training facility will likely be in the Thousand Oaks area for, for the next two and a half years or so. So the team's encouraging players to live in the Thousand Oaks area. But where should they live? Let's see. I mean, we've talked about Todd Gurley a lot on this yeah. podcast. He's the big He's going to be, he's star. the face. He has where, to. Where, where, where should he live um, in, in L.A.? You know, it's logistically, of course, he's going to live where all the players are going to live, which is going to be close to, you know, their training facility. Um, yeah, so I, I see him close to downtown-ish, but, or having, you know, like a condo, a side place, somewhere yes. there, because he's going to want to be close to the action and embrace the, all the extracurricular stuff that LA is going to afford. Did you see the Stedman Bailey, uh, workout video? No. He's apparently coming back. Uh, Stedman Bailey, who was shot, uh, twice That's in the insane. head. Uh, like how? <laughs> of a drive-by. Um, all I know is I want him in a gated community. Yeah. I want him away from the action. I want him protected. Yeah. I hope he comes back. It's yeah. just a great story if he can't. That, that he's alive is a tremendous. I mean, like, are you kidding me? So what were you saying? Like he was doing like push ups or like. Yeah, it was on TMZ. It's just really? crazy. I mean, he has no doubt in his mind that he's coming back. I That's mean, awesome. It's, and, and the other piece of big, you know, news, I guess, was the uh, the Trey Mason arrest. Yeah. Um, somehow people are. Yeah. Weed. I mean, he's going to love it here. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, he would. You think. Uh, what do you think? The. What's the weed like here compared to St. Louis? Oh my God. <laughs> it's got to be night and day. But I think people are surprised. You know, you know, his dad was in De La Soul. What? Yep. His Fun dad, fact. Yep. His dad was in. So I don't know if we should be surprised that uh, <laughs> the son of a man who recorded three feet high and rising uh, <laughs> would get popped in for Hollywood, Florida. But yeah, it was kind of strange that. Um, yeah. That two months, less than two months after the team is. Um, L.A. bound, mm -hmm. um, a player gets in trouble in Hollywood, and it's Hollywood, Florida. Um, <laughs> Little conjectures. But, yeah, I hope Stedman comes back. That would be nice. I could see him. Yeah, definitely a gated community would be preferred. Maybe just have a different uh, entourage of, uh, of of people with him. You know what I mean? I don't know what the situation was surrounding his shooting the last time um, getting popped in the head, but hopefully he'll have a little bit of a tighter-knit, less-armed group of guys with him yeah man. you know what i mean i could These see guys him. are gonna have to be careful absolutely because yeah. this is another animal yeah living in la is going yeah. to be completely different and i saw that fisher quoted something about that like you know 22 and 23 year olds are gonna mo are gonna require a little bit more monitoring in los angeles as opposed to as they would you know in the midwest or any other city really because there's just so many other things going on like you this is now tmz's backyard yeah. so if you thought you got caught up 
in something before in St. Louis, amplify that by a million and you were going to have these guys popping out of bushes and shit. Like I remember seeing that, you know, at a Starbucks, you know what I mean? Like the most random person would come by and I could give a damn. I'm just sitting there doing what I have to do. And all of a sudden guys who I thought were, you know, working or something, pull out these giant lenses. And I was like, Oh, like, yeah. oh you, you, you know what I mean? It's like, Hi, you can't believe you tricked me, yeah. <laughs> you know? So this is definitely going to be something that they have to watch out for. So, at the time of this recording, Janoris Jenkins is uh, is is unsigned, both by the Rams or any other team. Um, I I don't know if Janoris Jenkins is the perfect player mm-hmm. for um, Hollywood or the worst possible um, mm-hmm. match for Hollywood. Thin line. Um, yeah, but I, it would be so much fun. It doesn't look likely at this point, but it would be so much fun. I, and I had actually an idea. I know he um, he recently rejected a five-year, $45 million mm-hmm. offer from the Rams. And according to, I mean, every, everyone, he's a hot property in the free agent market. Um, so he thought that was a little low? But he thought it was low. Mm. Yeah, he thought they lowballed him. Um, he thinks he's a shutdown corner. And I had an idea. Um, I don't, I know that uh, Janoris Jenkins famously loves strip clubs. Well then. And, you know, Los Angeles strip clubs are probably, you know. I'm going to say that the girls are probably a little bit more top shelf. Yeah. I mean, and so if he joins, say, the Green Bay Packers, (laughs) I would say it's probably going to be a different level strip club um, for him uh, than (laughs) But um, so my idea is this, uh, they pay, there's no restriction on funny money Get bitches um, in the, uh, Get against money. the salary cap. <laughs> so they could just, I feel like they could pay him even less than $45 million. If like, they kind of dangle the carrot yeah, of ass in his face, like, Hey, look, we got can this. you give the guy like, are you, funny is money. there any rule against giving the guy, you know, $30 million of funny money? <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. What I thought that would be a great idea. I wonder if there are any. I don't know if that's hidden underneath a certain, you know, contract line. That'd be funny. I um a couple of Rams, you know, have other L.A. connections. Um, Jeff Fisher, not really L.A., but his parents are near Oxnard. Right. Somebody asked him if yeah. you were gonna if he was gonna live, you know, in his parents' guest house, and he was like, "Hell no!" Like my dad would be like, "Why'd you call this play? Why didn't you do that?" You know, every time, like he, I can't see him going anywhere near Oxnard. He already shut that down. And uh, I could totally see. Oh, go ahead. No, Who else no. has an L.A. connection? Akeem Ayers, a linebacker, uh, went to high school in Watts. Okay. Um, so hopefully he'll be. Uh, I don't know that he's gonna necessarily. No, he's yeah. not. Gonna <laughs> but hopefully he'll be active in the community. Absolutely, that's a great him. opportunity for that. Now Bradley Marquez, who's uh, a backup wide receiver, not not a huge star of the team, uh, is uh, as far as I can tell, the lone Mexican player on the team, and. I was reading up on him, and apparently every time he goes back home to Odessa, Texas, his mother uh, his mother makes Mexican food for him. He, he just hit the jackpot. Did he? Um, because he, he got paid. Well, no, he's gonna get, he can get paid in burritos because he <laughs> it is hell of a the lot better Mexican food is yeah. a lot better yeah. here in LA. So I, I thought it. Um, I could tell him all the the spots. Yeah, he could hit me up. He could. I could give him all the recommendations in the world, especially if you know they go down to San Diego. I can tell him all the spots down there. You ever go to Guelaguetza? No. Oh yeah, it's a Oaxacan place in K Town. Um, 
it's so good. Best mole's. Um, <laughs> I'm curious about um, William Hayes, yeah. Big Play Hayes, because he's, I don't know, maybe one of the lone personalities left now that uh, Chris Long is out and is shopping free agency. Um, I would have liked to see them as roommates. I would have loved, I want them to have a reality show yeah. so bad, yeah. but now, I mean, that dream's got washed, but I, he has this whole, you know, Save the Mermaids campaign that he's been doing like through Chris Long's uh, social media accounts, but he belongs in Venice Beach. Like, that's the lock. He's also a free agent, so we're not yeah, right. I hope not, he. Yeah. yeah. We're so, not sure about him either, but um, he has. I feel like he, he has been a speech. He, written it's written him. all over him because if he really wants to do this whole save the mermaids, dinosaurs aren't real thing that he's been putting out there, then he just belongs in Venice Beach walking around. That would I would go to Venice Beach weekly Seriously. to see him walk around. And I don't know. And then last but not least, Johnny Hecker. I really I, I don't believe that there's a football player out there that's uh, better built for Silver Lake. Um, oh, is he a hipster? He's kind of a hipster. Yeah. I mean, he last, he was at the Pokemon headquarters oh, last no. week. He's like obsessed <laughs> with Xbox. He'll do like these crazy, he does Reddit, a, ask me anything. And oh, uh, yeah, snorts, that's... snorts jello and Wait, what? Um, has all these kooky uh, t-shirts. He calls himself the real Johnny football. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's... And um, what else? He just does all sorts of stuff. He, oh, he'll just like make big Lebowski references. Um so I, I just think he has Silver Lake uh, written all over him. I haven't um, seen him in, in street clothes. Does he do the skinny man jeans and, you know, funny haircut? He, he like, doesn't. But let's these guys are going to they, remember. They're going to these adjust. guys have been living right in the Midwest mm-hmm. for a few years. Mm-hmm. So I um, expect them. Give them some room. Expect them to mm-hmm. grow. Expect expect them to. Um, they'll he, explore he they'll... was he went to school college in oregon and had like crazy todd marinovich kind of hair um red dangling locks um that he lost on the rams and uh, i'd like to see those come back i think that would be super cool a week in silver lake and he'll get the glue he'll start <laughs> he'll lock it up Last week, Los Angeles police announced that a long, serrated knife was found at O.J. Simpson's former Brentwood estate. The announcement of the discovery coincided with the FX broadcast The People vs. O.J. Simpson, chronicling the disgraced Gridiron Star's 1995 acquittal for the murders of wife Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. All of it got me thinking about the much less publicized trial going on at the time, of Los Angeles Rams cornerback Daryl Henley and the strange ways that the two trials impacted one another. There are approximately 10 books that every Rams fan simply must own. Michael McKnight's portrait of the rise and fall of Daryl Henley intercepted is certainly one of them. McKnight is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's written about MLB's handling of Milton Bradley's domestic violence crimes, the downward spiral of former California Angels stopper Donnie Moore, as well as his own gallant quest to dunk a basketball. Joining us to talk about the people versus Daryl Henley is Michael McKnight. Michael. Thank you, Josh. It's good to be here. Thank you. Michael, you wrote a 474-page book on Henley, but uh, remind us, uh, who was 
Daryl Henley and, and what did he do? Daryl Henley was a six-year veteran of the NFL who played for the L.A. Rams between 1989 and 1994. He was a second-round pick in 1989, and he was a starting cornerback for the L.A. Rams for four of his six years in the NFL. In 1993, he was indicted for cocaine trafficking uh, conspiracy by a court in Orange County, Santa Ana, California. And about a year and a half after that, also in Santa Ana, after a 10-week trial, he was convicted of those tasking charges along with four others. And uh, while in jail, about a year after his conviction, he was found to have had a cell phone smuggled to him in his cell in downtown Los Angeles at Metropolitan Detention Center, which is a high-rise prison in downtown Los Angeles. And he was charged and eventually pled guilty to soliciting the murder of a federal judge and a key witness in his trial, who was a Rams cheerleader, who was also involved in the cocaine conspiracy. And now Daryl Henley is 20 years into a 41-year prison sentence. It's an amazing story, and it's an amazing book. Um, could you, uh, how did, you know, I thought one, one thing I've course, I think was really remarkable the way the O.J. Simpson trial impacted the Henley case. Could you talk about that? I firmly believe that we would all know a lot more about Daryl Henley if the most visible criminal proceeding in American history and maybe world history was not taking place at the same time. You know, people have gone on and on about the way that the O.J. Simpson trial changed media. And it really did way, it really did alter the way we report criminal proceedings. You know, it altered the way that celebrity can impact uh, a what's supposed to be an impartial, you know, criminal trial. It was just a, a hot mess of so many white hot factors that any other, you know, criminal proceeding that was going on in Southern California at the same time was just not going to get any attention. I mean, the stories, Josh, of my work on this book. The stories I heard from journalists and other people who were present at Daryl Henley's trial, and there weren't very many people who were present, was that it was a, it was an empty courtroom hmm. because the LA Times best journalist and the Orange County Register's best journalist and USA Today and New York Times and God knows everybody else, CNN and everybody else was in Judge Ito's courtroom or you know camped out outside. So this trial didn't get a lot of publicity, and uh, you know one or two journalists were on occasion were on were on hand occasionally certainly not every day. And meanwhile, this really, really fascinating story was unfolding. The story about um, justice and the way that we convict criminals and the way that, you know, hubris and overconfidence and this need of Daryl Henley's to be a little bit more street than he really was can just send somebody away to prison for a long period of time. So the O.J. Simpson case impacted this Daryl Henley story greatly in that it was the huge sun in the solar system and the Daryl Henley case was but a, a small little asteroid. You talk about uh, Henley's personality. I, I worry sometimes that history is going to have Henley confused with Lawrence Phillips in some ways. And uh, these are completely different personalities. Henley, you describe him as, as a square uh, in your book. Yeah, and I only describe him that way, Josh, because so many of his close friends and teammates and UCLA buddies and and, and LA Rams buddies said the same thing. The greatest response, and I, I mean, this may sound trite, but the greatest response when Daryl Henley when Daryl Henley first got in trouble was, "Daryl, 
Daryl Henley did this? It was a it was just an absolute uh, degree of of being stunned that is the polar opposite of you know what what we all felt when Lawrence Phillips got in trouble. Most of us knew about Lawrence Phillips's kind of checkered past, and a handful of other professional athletes or college athletes who have you know we could almost predict that at some point they're going to see uh, the inside of a courtroom. Daryl Henley was the antithesis of that, and. You know, it's important to me, I guess. You know, I spent years, Josh, I'm nobody's sucker. You know what I mean? And yeah. I spent years making sure that I was not being suckered in by what some people believe was a con man. Daryl Henley is manipulative, and he's super intelligent, and he's a smooth talker, and he's just frighteningly smart, and he's all of those things. So, you know, I knew that going in, and I struggled with that for years. And, in fact, only recently, you know, since the book, have I kind of been like, I've made, I made very, very certain that I was not being hoodwinked and was not being, uh, you know, lured into the trap of this con man who was trying to sway me as a journalist one way or the other. That's fascinating. I to be, yeah. I yeah. found him to be open and smart and, and, uh, self-deprecating and very aware of his crimes and his mistakes in a truly genuine way. And, uh, so a lot of this was a personal journey as well, too, Josh. It's it's a journey I think that um, a lot of journalists sh- could really learn a lot from. You know, one thing we were talking about just prior to bring bring you on was uh, the making of a murderer on uh, the Netflix series, and um, the way in which I mean, similar kind of context, I guess, a court that and in a courtroom environment that kind of might have made it that might've had things rigged against the defendant, but the storytelling that you do is so unlike the making of murder. They, it seems like they did get hoodwinked by their, or they, you know, they told his side of the story. They lose, they lost track of that journalistic um, critical distance that you, you maintain throughout this book. Yeah, I, you know, I can't speak to how, how, how good of a job they did of steering clear, but I know I can promise you that I, you know, I had many sleepless nights making sure that, you know, among other things, if I write a, you know, if I write a book that is obviously slanted or swayed, or if I've been conned, my career is over, (laughs) you know, um, among other things. And I just wasn't willing to risk that. And, you know, I staked my reputation on, on, uh, just writing the truth of what happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, Daryl's darkest moments are in this book. Um, he's recorded on tape, you know, and we write in the book with quotation marks around it, him being asked whether he really wants to go through with this murder on a judge and him responding, quote, I want it, unquote. You know, so Daryl Henley is not innocent. Mm-hmm. Getting back to that stunned feeling, um, you brought attention to several violations of, of amendments that took place in that original trial, right? Like there were some jurors that were saying they were calling, um, you know, four of the five defendants, the N word. There was a juror who um, was asked for $25,000 in exchange for an acquittal vote. Um, do you think the attention that the OJ trial brought kind of bringing that back into the picture was all because all the attention towards uh, at the time was on that trial, that maybe that's why also some of these misdoings um, of the trial for Henley were kind of brushed under the rug. Without question. Absolutely. And so ask your, you know, we have to ask ourselves if there is a, uh, an NFL starter one of its 32 franchises who was embroiled in a federal drug trial 
It's not an open and shut case. It's a 10 week trial now. You know, why doesn't the layperson know anything about that? Mm-hmm. It's a big deal, right? I mean, it's among sports fans and nothing else. And we don't know anything about it because of this other, you know, this massive, again, I refer to it as the sun, whereas Daryl's was, Daryl's case is kind of a little speck of an asteroid. Uh, you know, another example during the trial is so there's a juror in the trial that had very recently, prior to Daryl Henley's trial, uh, served on another jury, the drug trial in which the prosecutor of the Dale Henley case was also the prosecutor in that case. And this juror returned a guilty verdict in that case. Mm. And then he was placed on the Daryl Henley jury. And that's what, and that's what, you know, jury selection is about is eliminating those kinds of conflicts. This juror was recently on a drug trial prosecuted by the same Dale Henley prosecutor. This juror returned a guilty verdict in that our jury selection process is intended to get rid of those jurors who may have even the appearance of partiality. Mm-hmm. So there's hard and fast evidence in Daryl Henley's trial that the prosecutor in Daryl Henley's case knew this, knew, recognized that juror, and knew that he was on his case and did not dismiss them. So, again, it just shed a light on to me. I was a bit naive maybe beforehand about, how, about the way these cases are prosecuted um, and the way that uh, the authorities sometimes earn victories. And, yes, to your question, absolutely some of these things would have come to light had you know, the biggest criminal proceeding in in world history, not taking place at the same time. Um, it, so absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it, it makes an, a great arguable case for entrapment and why, you know, making something like a like a making a murderer um, show or the serial podcast about this it would be fascinating because you would learn all these little nuances that, all right, well, maybe the DEA concocted this whole uh, the smuggling of the phone and the conspiracy to commit murder because they knew that would trump the wrongdoings that took place in the original trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, again, just having interviewed as many people I've spoken to, both on the the government side and the and uh, Daryl Henley's side, as it were. You know, there's just um, you know there was Daryl Henley had a very strong motion for a new trial after he was convicted. No matter what way you slice it, no impartial observer cannot look at the facts and say that his motion for a new trial would not have been strong based on everything you just described. The problems on the jury. Um, there was a, there's some challenges with the judge and his impartiality. The judge had a prior relationship with the prosecutor. Uh, the prosecutor in Daryl Henley's trial was once the judge's clerk. Um, there's all kinds of details that, that lead up to Dale, to Dale Henley's conviction. And he was, according to my interviews with these jurors, Dale Henley was the hardest of these five defendants to convict. Uh, there's all kinds of, of, of evidence that suggests that his motion for a new trial would have been extremely strong. So you have to ask yourself, you know, why was this uh, DEA operative placed on his cell block? And in order to, to introduce Henley to this other guy, this other undercover agent who was pretending to be a mafioso, why did that happen? You know, maybe, you know, maybe they did it so they, they could make sure that any sort of post-trial release, any sort of motion for a new trial would be immediately crumpled up and thrown away. Exactly. How you talk a lot about uh, Orange County, the, the trial having taken place in Orange County and, and the jury pool. Um, coming from Orange County. How did that affect the case? Uh, well, uh, deeply. The, the answer is it deeply affected the case. You know, so there were 160 potential jurors on Daryl Henley's trial, uh, people who were brought into the courtroom and weighed as to whether they would be jurors or not, and two of those people were African-American. And uh, there was 
either one or two, it's been a while, there were either one or two African-Americans on the final deciding jury in Daryl Henley's case. The O.J. Simpson jury, which was drawn from Los Angeles County, was the exact photo negative of that. Almost totally African-American. Um, there are a number of, of African-American women on the O.J. Simpson trial who I think everyone was a bit surprised at how sympathetic they were to O.J. Simpson's cause. Um, so where these juries were drawn from, the populations from which they were pulled is a, is a big part of Daryl Henley's jury. It's a big part of his story, rather. Do you think connecting that, um, you mentioned one of the defendants was basically given a slap on the wrist in comparison to the other verdicts, and that was four months uh, you know, in a halfway house. Um, and this guy happened to be the only white defendant and a native of Orange County. Do you see that... Um, do you see that being, um, you know, connected to this as to like why um, Henley might still be might still be having to serve 41? Well, that's the cheerleader. I think the person you're talking about was the cheerleader. Her, her name is Tracy Donahoe. She's uh-huh. a female. And she was, you know, she was finished the four months in a halfway house. Um, uh, she was a you know, she helped the government during their investigation of Daryl Henley. And um, there were times when her trial testimony was really inconsistent. And you know, in, in in exchange for her participation with the government, um, she was you know sentenced to four months in a halfway house. You know, she's it's just uh, it's the way the system works. I think you know uh, there's a lot of of factors and quote unquote issues that come into play in Daryl Henry's story. One of them is the mandatory minimum sentencing laws. You know, these laws that were enacted in the wake of the Lynn Bias tragedy in the late '80s that took judges out of the process of sentencing criminals and mandated that, for example, you know, drug criminals be served to a minimum of 10 years in prison. Another issue is the use of informants. And Tracy Donahoe is an example of that. You know, if you play ball with the government, you will get your sentence cut. And, you know, you can make a strong argument that the authorities need that in order to, to solve crimes, in order to put away bad guys. But what happens after that in terms of the punishment that these informants um, are are given is something that I believe deserves closer scrutiny. I, I just think it's inconsistent for the defendant, one of the defendants in this case, to be served to serve um, four months in a halfway house, having knowingly carried suitcases of cocaine through four major airports, and uh, everyone else goes to trial and gets convicted and is sentenced to a minimum of ten years. So, and Tracy Donahoe. I, I mean, we should say, you know, blonde hair. Fair skinned, sure. Uh, girl next door. Uh, the prosecution elaborate kind of. Uh, her, you describe a scene where her, she, where she shows up in court with her parents, and really, in a lot of ways, this is the worst of all possible scenarios for Henley. Like tapping into a conservative jury pool's uh, biggest fears about, you know, black men. Uh, manipulating white women, manipulating white women, taking advantage. Yeah. Did it seem like they painted it like that, that picture? Well, I think the, you know, having spoken with the DEA agents who worked on this case, um, and, you know, there was an, there was an effort made to, uh, portray her as this injured damsel in distress at trial, which if I were the prosecutor, I might do the same thing. Um, and, uh, it worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, as to whether race played a played an issue in it, you know, Orange County is a predominantly white 
uh, suburban area of Los Angeles or Southern California. Um, you know, I can't get into those jurors' heads as to whether her whiteness made her more or less believable or made it more or less of a case of, you know, black men corrupting young white women. Nor but, would they admit it. Um, but you do go yeah. to great lengths to establish the history of racism in, in, in Orange just County. Laying, in yeah, the book. laying it out, you would you can read between the lines. It's a, um, you know, it, the challenge is, is that, you know, later after the trial, uh, Tracy Donahoe was the was the purported victim of this murder solicitation right. scheme, which, again, was presented to Daryl Henley by an undercover DEA agent. And, you know, you could argue as to whether that scheme was ever real or it was something just completely fabricated by the government and presented to Daryl Henley. But, you know, so she's not, I, I'm not here to kind of put devil horns on her head. I think mm-hmm. Tracy Donahoe got in way too deep in something she was not ready for at age 19. And, um, she eventually had her life threatened as a result of it. Um, so you know, I guess I'm respectful of her, her well-being, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that she's gone on to live, uh, you know, a productive life, even though she wouldn't, she would, she didn't, she declined to speak with me, and in fact, declined to even respond to my request. So you know, there's not really any good guys or shining, you know, knights at the end of this story. There really are no good guys at the end of this story, uh, including Daryl Henley, despite the. You know, the, the work he's done to, in prison to prove himself, uh, you know, worthy of, of possibly an early release. You know, he helps inmates earn their GEDs, and he has a tremendous relationship with his daughter, who's now in college. Um, so, you know, Tracy Donahoe, I consider uh, a victim in this case, just because she was pulled into this as a teenager and eventually had her life threatened. And I can't imagine what that was like for her. Um, so... There's just no clean-cut answers as to who the, the, the bad guys are and who the good guys are in this An, story. Another interesting character uh, who shows up in the book is Suge Knight, uh, Death Row Records. Uh, people uh, know not so much about his uh, days as a Rams replacement player um, or his uh, friendship with Daryl Henley, but there's this incredible scene that you paint uh, where they're at Palisades Park and, and uh, they're playing tackle football and Jimmy Iovine is there and Ron, I think Ron Brown, who was on the show last episode was also randomly there. And, um, and Jimmy pops a cassette into uh, his Cherokee and lo and behold, it's, it's gin and juice. And they're all listening to this song for the first time. And, and uh, JFK Jr. is bobbing his head and um, they're all trying to, to, to help Daryl. But who was, who was Daryl's support system? in, during all of this? Well, Daryl's main, main support system is his family, and they were his support system throughout all of this. You know, the, the challenging part about that is that he never let on to his parents or his family or his brothers how deeply he was truly involved in this. You know, it, it, this, this cocaine conspiracy trial in 1993, you know, the trial in 1995, you know, by the letter of the law, Daryl Henley is not innocent of cocaine trafficking conspiracy. He was involved in it. He he insists that it was as a, in a peripheral way, but um, so he never really owned up to his closest supporters about yes, I was involved with this. Um, his family included. You know, the people who did know include uh, you know a, a few Rams teammates that he opened up to when things started getting hot and heavy in 1993. I am in trouble. Who, you know, who was that? About this in the newspapers. Who would that be? You know, guys, the the, the defensive backs, mainly the defensive backs group uh, at the time, Steve Israel. Uh, Todd Light, uh, Robert Bailey, those guys were really close. Anthony, and Daryl pulled them aside one Anthony day. Anthony Newman, probably too. Anthony yeah. Newman, yeah. definitely. Um, 
so, and, you know, Suge Knight, who I think Daryl would, would agree nowadays, that wasn't the best person to kind of have in your corner at that time in, in his life, just in terms of kind of creating a, a positive image and an I am innocent type image. You know, that he was a guy that Daryl Henley trusted, and, and he knew of Daryl Henley's involvement in this cocaine trafficking scheme, and he, you know, stood by him and supported him, and he even helped him um, uh, financially here and there in terms of paying for lawyers and that kind of a thing. When was the last time you communicated with uh, with Daryl? Do you regularly communicate with him? I've, I've exchanged, uh, I, I probably email him every month or so, but he and I have emailed each other every day for like the last week or so, uh-huh. as it happens. Um, yeah, we're in pretty close touch. Um, his daughter is in college. His daughter is, I think it's just a happy ending at the end of this story. She's an amazing person. And, uh, you know, she knows my wife and children and we know her and we love Gia. And, uh, you know, that makes me a, a crummy impartial journalist and I'm a crummy impartial journalist, but she's a good person and we stand by her. And, um, so yeah, we, Daryl and I communicate about her often and, um, uh, you know, he's still hopeful that before uh, the current president leaves office and his clemency petition might get some sort of traction and, and his case might be looked at again. And the question could be asked whether not is he innocent, you know, not with Daryl Henley railroaded, but is 20 years enough? If you take into account these minimums, minimum, mandatory minimum sentencing laws, and if you take into account what happened in Metropolitan Detention Center with this phone and this informant and this undercover DEA agent, is 20 years enough? Um, so, I think that's that's the basis for his communication uh, now with me. Is there anything Rams fans can do for him? Well, uh, he loves getting letters, and again, it's impossible for me to understate his uh, his uh, his intelligence. Um, he, he's, he he loves getting mail. He loves hearing from people who remember him as a player. Um, they can write to him if they look up, you know, on the Bureau of Prisons BOP.gov. Uh, he's in a facility in Mississippi called Yazoo City, and the mailing information is online at, at the Bureau of Prisons, and they can write him a letter. Um, but, uh, you know, aside from that, uh, one of the more, uh, I think, redeeming qualities that Daryl Henley has is he knows that he put himself where he is. Everything that we're describing, you know, in terms of some of the foul, you know, some of the some of the misbehavior at, at trial by the government, et cetera, Daryl Henley knows that had he not made a series of decisions that preceded all that, he would not be where he is today. So he doesn't, you know, declare himself a victim. Um, but he, you know, he, he's, he's wide open to hearing from people who, who just, you know, remember happier days, I guess. So if, as, as, as far as whether Rams fans, Rams fans can help him, you know, consider writing him a letter. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Take care. That was Michael McKnight, author of Intercepted from the University of Nebraska Press. In our final segment, which we call Film Study, we dissect an episode or scene from a film or TV show that prominently features, you guessed it, Los Angeles Rams. Thankfully, there are thousands to choose from, many of which we'll be chronicling on our greatest show on grass, Tumblr. 
So far, we've looked at 1978's Heaven Can Wait and 1953's Crazy Legs, each of which prominently feature Los Angeles Rams teams. Sergeant Rutledge, which takes place in the 19th century, does not. It does, however, star one of its former players, Woodrow Wilson Woolwine Strode, or as he was more commonly known, Woody. Woody Strode's Ram career was brief but momentous. He, along with Kenny Washington, broke the NFL's color barrier, that gentleman's agreement that owners began enforcing to keep black players out of the league. Both men were born in Los Angeles, attended UCLA, with Jackie Robinson, by the way, served in the U.S. Army, and played on the Hollywood Bears in the Pacific Coast Professional League, a refuge for African-American football stars. When Rams owner Dan Reeves decided to leave Cleveland and bring the team to Los Angeles to play in the Coliseum, a group of black sports writers backed by the chairman of the Coliseum Commission approached Rams GM Charles Chili Walsh and, not so subtly, suggested that local hero Kenny Washington join the team. Even though Washington was 27 at the time and had bad knees, he still had gas in the tank. And as Bob Oates wrote in The Examiner, Washington was, quote, the mightiest drawing card in coast football. After some initial pushback, the Rams eventually signed Washington on March 21st, 1946. Now, Kenny Washington needed a roommate especially for when the team left progressive Los Angeles and took to the road. And so the Rams signed his pal Woody Strode. Unlike Jackie Robinson's experiences breaking the color barrier in baseball, Robinson's Brooklyn Dodger teammates petitioned to keep him off the team, Washington and Strode generally fit in with their Rams teammates. Part of that was thanks to Rams quarterback Bob Waterfield, who had followed Washington and Strode at UCLA and harbored immense respect for what each had accomplished. Waterfield helped Washington rehabilitate his knees prior to his debut season in the NFL, and during Rams practices, Kenny Jr. even used to sit on the lap of Waterfield's wife, the actress Jane Russell. As Strode joked in his autobiography, Goldust, quote, he was only five years old and he thought he had already died and gone to heaven. On the road, it was a different story for Washington and Strode. A hotel in Chicago refused to let them stay with the rest of the team, so the two had to book a room on the other side of town. Deciding to grab a few drinks that night at a jazz club, they were soon joined by Waterfield, who felt awful about what had gone down. The three ended up watching Count Basie perform until the wee hours of the night. Neither Washington nor Strode thrived with the Rams the way that Jackie Robinson would thrive with the Dodgers. Strode, a wide receiver tight end hybrid, was six foot four and two hundred and ten pounds and a formidable deep threat, but the Rams kept him on the bench, occasionally putting him in at defensive line. The next season Strode was cut, even though, according to his account, he could still outrun anyone on the team other than Tom Harmon. Washington, who was brought back for the nineteen forty seven season, told Strode that the reason the Rams cut him was because the team didn't approve of he and Hawaiian wife actress Luana Strode's Hawaiian lifestyle. I've never quite understood what that was all about. Perhaps too many splashy floral patterned shirts, but the end of Strode's tenure with the Rams seemed to sour his historical achievement. 
Strode would later say of his NFL experience, if I have to integrate heaven, I don't want to go. Like many of their Rams teammates, Washington and Strode managed to parlay their NFL profiles into Hollywood gigs, albeit less prominent ones than those of Elroy Hirsch, who we talked about last episode. In the 1950s, mostly just to pay the bills, Strode went back and forth between professional wrestling gigs and acting. His Native American ancestry, he was Creek and Blackfoot on his father's side and Cherokee on his mother's, gave him an exotic look that ironically landed him a ton of roles playing African warriors. Things took a turn for the better in 1959 when he co-starred with Gregory Peck in Porkchop Hill. And in 1960, when he became a bona fide star playing a gladiator opposite Kirk Douglas in Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. Later that year, he became the first African American to star in a Western in John Ford's Sergeant Rutledge. Inspired by the story of the Buffalo Soldiers, former slaves and members of the 9th and 10th Cavalry, who formed in 1866 to fight in the Indian Wars, the film tells the story of Sergeant Braxton Rutledge, accused of murdering his post commander and raping and then murdering the post commander's daughter. Warner Brothers wanted an established actor like Sidney Poitier or Harry Belafonte to play the lead, but Ford insisted on someone tougher, someone like Woody Strode. We are first introduced to Rutledge via flashback during court martial proceedings. A young woman named Mary Beecher, played by Constance Towers, recalls getting off a train in Arizona where she expected to meet her father. Instead, she meets Sergeant Rutledge, who grabs her, cupping his massive hand over her mouth so that she can't scream. Here's the scene. I'm First Sergeant Rutledge, United States Cavalry. <laughs> Quiet, ma'am. I ain't gonna hurt you, but I ain't gonna let you scream. Now you listen to me. I've been blood trailed all the way into Spindle by three mascaleros. They jumped me about a mile back, got my horse. I killed one. The other two are out there somewheres. Do you understand? Apaches. Ford shoots the scene to emphasize Rutledge's power over Beecher deliberately tapping into stereotypes that went back to the early days of slavery about the threat that black men posed to white women. By making the audience fear for the prim and blonde Beecher, the scene establishes Rutledge's goodwill. He only wants to save her from the marauding Apaches, but it also foreshadows the ways that his goodwill will be undermined by prejudice. Despite his heroism, Rutledge is placed under arrest by a group of soldiers under the command of Lieutenant Cantrell, played by Jeffrey Hunter. Asked repeatedly about his involvement in the murder of his post commander and the rape and murder of his post commander's daughter, Rutledge refuses to assert his innocence, and I won't spoil the film by telling you why. When Lieutenant Cantrell's unit pursues the Indians, Rutledge breaks free and attempts to save a fellow soldier who's been mortally wounded. Here's Rutledge with the dying corporal in a scene that, in a not-so-small way, forecasts a certain prophetic voice of the civil rights era. Rats! Rats! I'm here, Moffat. I'm right here, Moffat. My three little girls. What's going to happen to them, Brax? Someday, Moffat, 
They're gonna be awful proud of you. <laughs> someday, you're always talking about someday, like it's gonna be a promised land here on Earth. Rutledge has a chance to escape, but instead warns his soldiers of an impending Indian attack. The film's climax comes back in the courtroom when a racist prosecutor repeatedly asks Rutledge why he returned to help his men instead of escaping. And just two side notes, Strode uses the N-word in this scene, so if that upsets you, then maybe just jump ahead a bit. Um, that being said, this film is not on YouTube, but I strongly encourage you to purchase this film uh, as a DVD, if not for only this scene. Strode called it the truest moment he had ever had on screen. He is, in a word, majestic. All I know, I kept writing, and something kept telling me I had to go back. It was like... It was like... Uh, I just ain't got the words to say it. Then I'll say it for you. Bravery is your stock in trade, Rutledge. Your whole record shows it. But murderers and rapists can be as brave as decent men. You are trying to trade your murderer's bravery for the mercy of this court, isn't that it? No, sir, that is not the law. Rutledge, if that isn't it, what was it? It's because the Ninth Calvary was my home, my real freedom, and my self-respect. And the way I was deserting it, I wasn't nothing but worse than a swamp-running nigger. And I ain't that. Do you hear me? I'm a man. Now, one of the premises of this podcast is that films and television shows featuring rams are interesting and fun to think about. Sometimes that means discussing films like Crazy Legs, which we looked at last episode, which, while communicating lots of fascinating things about the meaning of the Los Angeles Rams, may not stand up as works of art on their own. In the case of Sergeant Rutledge, it means sharing what I believe is a true cultural treasure. The heart-wrenching response from Rutledge to the prosecutor captures the spirit of a world-weary man who, despite owning manumission papers, deep down has little faith that he can be free in the white man's world. That said, Strode's Rutledge communicates another kind of freedom, one that's inside him and that no racist court can touch. Sergeant Rutledge feels timelier than ever. Even though its protagonist ends up vindicated, there's a sense in the film that age-old prejudices keep the system rigged, and that even those who are steadfast and upright, like Rutledge, can be impugned at any moment and left to defend themselves before those whose judgment is clouded by hate and fear. In that sense, the story of Sergeant Rutledge is also the story of America, not to mention the story of Daryl Henley. Thank you for listening to The Greatest Show on Grass podcast, part of the Sideshow Network. You can follow us on Twitter at LA Rams Podcast or email us at greatestshowongrass at gmail.com. <laughs>